this week on the Back Table Podcast. Endometriosis is a disease characterized by endometrium-like tissue outside of the uterus, right? And you'd circle B and you'd get that answer correct and you'd move on. But there's so much more. And I think even us thinking about how we talk about it or even how we define it would better serve our patients and even ourselves in terms of the complexity. So I think about endo as a complex disorder of varying manifestations and phenotypes that can lead to significant daily and chronic disability in our patients. And so that to me is kind of a a more accurate definition of endometriosis than, than we would have seen back in med school. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. And welcome to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. Uh, this is Mark Hoffman, and with me once again is Dr. Amy Park. Amy, how are you? Good. How are you guys doing? Good. And we have another great guest today, uh, Dr. Isabel Green, an associate professor of OBGYN at the Mayo Clinic, who is a minimally invasive GYN surgeon. She is the fellowship director of the minimally invasive GYN surgery fellowship at Mayo Clinic. And today we're going to talk about endometriosis and, and pelvic pain. Dr. Green, Isabel, how are you? Hi, it's great to see and hear you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Great to see you again. How's life? How's it work? Everybody, everybody's good? Always working, it feels like, but that's, I think, a good place to be these days. So pretty happy with things. Yeah, well, you work with some good people, friends of mine, in an amazing division up there. So welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. We usually start our shows by just allowing our guests or asking our guests to talk a little bit about how they got to be where they are, about their practice, and also how they became interested in what you're here to talk about, which is pelvic pain and endometriosis. Yeah. I think one thing I've loved about your show is hearing everyone's story and kind of where the path sort of went off of the sort of the regular beaten path and people kind of explore and find new ways to do things. And it's nice to see that that's one of the ways I think that like we make progress and like keep moving things forward. And so when I think about my background, and I think the easiest place to start is residency. So I'll age myself a little bit. I went to residency in 2003. So just to kind of sort of set the stage, robotics really came into the picture for GYN use in 2005. The MIGS fellowship was, I think, really just starting to kind of like expand, you know, and become something more mainstream. And so I had this incredible mentor who was a OBGYN that had shifted to GYN only and had been recruited to Hopkins to start a fibroid center. And he really had like the pulse on new technology, kind of new things in gynecology and invited pretty amazing speakers to come. And at that point, you know, we didn't have MIGs at all, you know, at Hopkins. And so I became more curious, you know, as to what what was out there in terms of other surgical options, other treatments. And so as a third-year resident, I went to work with Cameron Najat in California. So I did an away elective there. 
And I really remember that that was the first time when I called my mentor back and I was like, that was really the first time that I saw, you know, full excision of endo with organ preservation. So, right. So really trying to preserve the uterus, trying to preserve the ovaries, not like end block resection, you know, of endometriosis. And I kind of knew then that it was a game changer and something that I wanted to learn more and be able to do and be able to offer offer my patients. So went on to do fellowship and actually did fellowship at MedStar. So worked with Andy Sokol and Shrell. And then, you know, after fellowship, I had done, so this is kind of that idea of like always trying to figure out how you can learn more, even if it's not sort of the, the same routine. So then after fellowship, I still wanted more of that excision surgery. I did a ton of fibroid surgery in in fellowship, which was amazing, and I was very grateful. But I was seeing that like 30% of my patients with fibroids also had really bad endo, you know, like the two diseases were going together in my patients. So then I went over to Atlanta and worked with um, Ken Cenervo, so did an away kind of surgical uh, mini fellowship, mini elective there, and came back so that was great. And I was really appreciative that the staff at Hopkins were, you know, willing to help make that happen. And so I came back and kind of lived in that world for many years. I kind of felt like my surgical training was complete and could do the fibroids and the endo and, and help my patients that way. And did that for a while and then kind of started to notice some things. And I don't know if, if you two noticed this after being in practice for a while. But I started to notice that some patients that had complete excisions didn't respond the same as other patients. I started to see that the same treatments weren't working in some people. And I started to see that there were, I think, I thought things beyond endo that was causing pain and beyond kind of the treatments that I could offer. And then that took me to the International Pelvic Pain Society and taking courses and and really trying to expand my knowledge of pelvic pain and how it interplays with endo to really be able to meet the individual needs of the people I was taking care of. So that's really kind of the weird, very linear, right? So residency, fellowship, academic practice, but with these little side detours that I think were really essential to kind of help me see things in patients that I might not have seen without that experience. Didn't you go internationally, Isabel? I remember you did a, a stint somewhere in like Southeast Asia or something, right? Yeah. So then that's kind of, I'm like two people trapped in one person's body. So the other half of me is the passionate educator. So during this time that I'm kind of working on honing this surgical practice, I was also getting a master's in education for the health professions. And was offered an incredible opportunity to go to Malaysia for Johns Hopkins and help them run a med school. So I I did that as well. And then coming back from that, after about seven, eight years of post-fellowship, I sort of came to this crossroads of, you know, this education half of me and this surgeon and clinician half of me. And the irony was that I never wanted to do anything half, right? Like, I, that's why you do fellowship, right? You dig in and you learn more and you do more. I always wanted to be very high volume. So then about eight years into it, I reached a crossroads where I said, you know, can I really do 50% education? Can I take these jobs as an educator and still be a high volume 
robotic fibroid endosurgeon? And for me, I thought the answer was no, like not to the level that I wanted to be. So then that's where I did this other amazing detour that I'm really happy with and has worked very well for me and might not for other people, where I switched to minor surgery only and do really high volume hysteroscopy. And then my clinical practice is still heavy in pelvic pain. I'm the physician lead of our pelvic pain clinic. And I have an amazing team here. So I still get to, you know, have my partners that are doing advanced endo excision. So I still feel like I can get my patients what they need and still do education. Kind of like have it all by having a team-based model around me. That's incredible. And I'll say this, one of the joys of my practice, of my professional career has been surrounding myself by people who do well what I do poorly and allowing me to be successful. And my whole job is just to make them feel valued and to say thank you every day and be so grateful for them. But but honestly, like finding people that you, you can work with every day that genuinely enjoy the things that you enjoy and sometimes enjoy the things you don't so you don't have to do it. But to share that goal is is a years-long build, and you have a great team up there. I mean, I know them all pretty well. I had heard through uh, someone who had interviewed there that Mayo Clinic has a very unique like systems-based model. So it is really, truly inter-multidisciplinary. Like my colleague is an infectious disease, repro infectious disease. So she would be on a team with infectious disease and gynecologist, and that would be the team as opposed to gynecology and ID or something like that. Is that how your team is structured? So I think that it approaches things in terms of trying to have team-based care within your group. So we partner really closely with like our nurse practitioners, our nurses. So sort of everyone is engaged to the highest level they possibly could be to help us with caring for patients. So that's the first kind of level of integration. And then the other level is across disciplines. So our team, which consists of surgeons like myself that might do more of the minor surgeries, some surgeons that would do BSOs, other types of MIGS type surgeries, and then full stage four endosurgery. So sort of a spectrum of surgical practice. And then we'll have you know, sort of integrative relationships with colorectal, with urogyne, I think similar to other institutions. We have joint appointments, which helps a lot. So, you know, we're all joint appointed in surgery, people in MFM, some of them have joint appointments in genetics. So it's meant to be a very integrative place. There's no way to sort of escape the silo of your daily work, but it's meant to be a place where Really, anyone can call me. There's this thing called priority page. Anyone can call me from any department in the hospital for a question. So it's it's kind of meant to be a place where you can reach across the typical kind of boundaries of my zone, your zone, to really just take care of the patients. So it's a special place in that sense. I mean, what I've read about the Mayo Clinic, the Mayo Brothers, and how they designed it, and sort of my limited reading about health systems and building these hospital systems is, you know, how do you get the story someone told me is how do you get doctors to move to Rochester, Minnesota? And it's make it really nice to be a doctor. It's, it's allowed people to 
do their jobs and take care of patients and, and focus on being a doctor and leaving the other stuff to other people to do it well. And so that's been a story I've heard for years. And it sounds like from what you're saying, it's it sounds relatively accurate. Yeah, it's in a way it makes my job easier, but it mostly is focused on maximizing sort of the output for the patient and the outcomes for the patient. So my patients do better if I'm able to answer the questions that I need to answer on the portal and see them in clinic while someone else can do things that I could also do, but they can also do and probably do them a lot better than me. So it kind of frees us up to be in our role and not have to borrow so much. Operating at the top of your degree in a sense. Yeah. Your training or whatever or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's a special place. And getting here, I think this was, that's why I said this may not have worked for everyone. But coming here, because I have this incredible team around me, you know, I remember eight-hour surgeries and my, you know, right SI joint remembers those surgeries for sure. And I can still offer them just through this incredible team. So it made that decision, I think, to move away from major surgery and not feel like everything you do is going to waste right when you give something up and felt like that, I hope, has just made me a better clinician and a better pelvic pain provider because I've I've been there. No, I think and we've touched on those topics a little bit in prior shows and we could probably make an entire show just about tailoring one's career and trimming and all the things that we don't talk about when you do a fellowship and how different it can look, but maybe for another episode. But, you know, what I really wanted to spend time, you know, because your time is so valuable, what I really wanted to hear from you today was about endometriosis, which is a disease that as a mixed surgeon, I see a lot. I think many of us feel that we're inadequately treating patients or that we just don't have enough, whether it's knowledge or tools in the toolbox are probably all the above. Let's start sort of from the very basics though, from what like, what do we know about endometriosis? What causes it? How can it present? And then we'll get into some treatments. I know we have a lot of stuff to talk about. Well, I think you've acknowledged one of the challenges with even describing and characterizing endo, which is that what we know of it is based on not the most incredible research, not the most in-depth studies and understanding. And so whenever we start to define something, I think it's good to acknowledge the limitations in the information that is going into these definitions and into these guidelines and into these treatment plans is based on not perfect and definitely not perfect, but also probably inadequate research and knowledge. So it's almost like when you're doing a you know, meta-analysis, right? The data in will determine the data out, right? Good data yields good data. So I just think that's important to kind of acknowledge from the beginning. And then when I think about defining endo, I think about like sort of that multiple choice question answer from med school, right? So what is endometriosis? Endometriosis is a disease characterized by endometrium-like tissue outside of the uterus, right? And you'd circle B and you'd get that answer correct and you'd move on. But there's so much more. And I think even us thinking about how we talk about it or even how we define it would better serve our patients and even ourselves in terms of the complexity. So I think about endo as a complex disorder of varying manifestations and phenotypes 
that can lead to significant daily and chronic disability in our patients. And so that, to me, is kind of a, a more accurate definition of endometriosis than, than we would have seen back in med school. And I think that's a good starting point because one of the things that probably frustrates you and I'm sure has frustrated a lot of us is that lack of knowledge and that variability. So just the severe variability of the disease, which we can talk about. You know, one person will have superficial endometriosis and very severe pain symptoms. Someone else might have very significant fibrosis of the organs and scarring of the organs and less pain. And that's just one of the ways that it varies. So it's definitely more than just endometrial-like tissue outside of the uterus. Yeah. And that's something that the more I do this, the more I feel like we don't know. I mean, thorough history, thorough exam, you know, oftentimes these patients have had numerous surgeries and whatever excision means to that surgeon versus whatever excision means to a different surgeon. This idea of complete peritonectomy, which obviously is not a complete peritonectomy. This is a disease that's, you know, functioning and working at the microscopic level. And we're looking at this thing chipping away at, at times, you know, like they chipped away at cancer 70 or 80 years ago. There is a role for excision. And I want to talk about that a little bit later, but man, it feels like, you know, we're just a little bit in the dark here. Isabel, I wanted to circle back to one of the things that you had alluded to before, and we're just talking about patient response to surgeries. And we had Frank to come and do a public pain talk for us at, at one point in DC. And just this whole idea about the central sensitization of pain. And then I asked him at that point, I mean, it was many years ago, probably like 2012 or something about the role of using things like amitriptyline or gabapentin. And he was like, well, there's not really a lot of evidence or data to support their use. But it does seem like there is some, you know, lots of pathways that kind of activate that central sensitization pathway. If it's, you know, the reflex sympathetic dystrophies in the limbs and a lot of these syndromes go together. I see vulvodynia, pelvic pain, etc. What are your thoughts on the adjunctive therapies, etc.? Yeah, that's a great question. It's going to be sort of the same story as we talk about the variable presentation of endos, like that heterogeneity in the studies. So when we look at the data, there is not great data to support the use of gabapentin or nortriptyline or amitriptyline or those medications in the treatment of chronic pelvic pain and endometriosis. But there's very good data, right, for its use in disorders like fibromyalgia and other sensitization disorders. So the question then is, are we leaning into a similar pathophysiology and a process and sort of depending too much on that? Or is the literature just not very helpful because of how heterogeneous the patients are, right? So the studies are not well designed to kind of answer those questions. And there's probably in some individuals, I would say that in any given day, we might lean too far in one or the other of those directions where we're under treating central sensitization or over-treating the possibility of a central component with, you know, a neuromodulator. So it's so hard to kind of answer these questions because of the heterogeneity in the 
populations that are treated for these studies and the kind of design of the studies. But that's, you know, an area I think that a lot of people are interested in as we've learned more about the interplay of not only just the chronic pain that comes from endometriosis, but potentially some sort of pathophysiologic mechanisms where endometriosis can actually lead to not only that local, you know, neurogenesis and nociceptive response, but actually peripheral sensitization, central sensitization, crosstalk, you know, through the spinal cord and the sacral nerves. So there's probably a group of patients where that works very well for them. And that's a very helpful adjunct. We just don't have a great way of exactly saying that each patient fits into each separate category of endo, but there probably is a population where that would be helpful. We're looking at four or eight or some number of different presentations, but they all are just under the endometriosis umbrella, and we're studying them all together when they may have very different presentations or they may be impacting patients very differently, each one. And so we're, we're all grouping them together. Is that kind of the, the challenge that you're saying? Yeah. I think there's a bunch of challenges for treating endo. One is delay in diagnosis. Two is sort of the different levels and quality of surgery in the sense of quality being degree of excision, ablation. You know, that's an entire conversation to be had, right, in terms of the types of surgery. And then there's, I think, that other huge piece of the fact that patients with endometriosis can have multi-site pain they can have those overlapping pain conditions, so they're at much higher risk of developing other pain conditions like IC, like IBS, like chronic migraine. And they also can have, you know, myofascial pain as a secondary or a coexisting condition. So we, I think, have been frustrated with kind of the history of treatment of endometriosis, which has been based in you know, medications and surgery, and it's been somewhat historical. So I think Frank trying to say, I don't know that we have the data to support that is also a way of saying we need to be able to better answer that and understand this as a disease and not just borrow, you know, from other disease processes. But there are a lot of patients with endo that probably, if you look at them, they are also meeting criteria for those other overlapping pain conditions and fibromyalgia and chronic pain, where there is a role for those medications, you know, those alternative to opiates, those chronic pain medications to help with that sensitization and that, that process of dysregulation. Yeah, because um, I mean, it's the, there's the pain component, but there's also the hormonal component. And I think there's like really good evidence about the adjunct hormonal therapies like OCPs or what have you. But it is interesting, you know, postmenopausal endo or the whole role of ophorectomy. I mean, these were all debates that like have evolved over the course of my career and I've seen it go, you know, swing one way and the other. And it is, we don't have good subtyping in urogyne either. I mean, there's lots of pathways to overactive bladder lots of paths to prolapse, you know, but it, we end up all treating it the same. So it would be nice if we could tailor the therapy with a little bit more precision. And I guess we're not there yet. I was hoping that there was more because I'm not, like I said, in tune and going to IPPS like you guys are, but it seems like there's more scholarship in this arena. So that's actually good and interesting. But I think that it just points to the underfunding of these basic science and like pathophysiologic questions 
Yeah. So to Amy's point, like what's the latest understanding for the pathophysiology of endometriosis? Because the whole, you know, the, the, whatever the theories, like you mentioned, we learned in third year of med school, you know, when you have a patient that's got, you know, Meyer Rokotansky, so doesn't have a uterus or a vagina and has endo, well, that's not retrograde menstruation, but those patients can have endometriosis. So none of those things individually seem to fit to explain all of it. So can you educate us on what is the latest or best theory about where endometriosis comes from, how it proliferates, how it causes pain? Yeah, I wish I had a really good answer for that. So thanks for that (laughs) difficult question. But it's funny because we keep saying it, you know, is that it's probably different in different people, right? So when we look at the studies of retrograde menstruation, that doesn't make sense for people that don't have retrograde menstruation and doesn't make sense for the 80% of people that probably have that every month, but then don't end up with endometriosis. So there's some great work. And if we can sort of keep developing these pathophysiologic mechanisms, then that will hopefully lead to better diagnostics, right? Better therapeutics. But some interesting work in genetic susceptibility, which is probably a small, small percent, differences and sort of dysregulation that happens. So with inflammatory cytokines, sort of autoimmune dysregulation. And these are all sort of really broad, general ideas, right? And so I think you could bring a basic scientist on to talk about which cytokine and, you know, which different specific biomarker. But it's good and exciting to see that that is an area of research right now. So looking at changes in the immune system, looking at changes in angiogenesis, you know, the development of, it's almost like it's cells that are converting and acting like malignancy without a malignancy. So there's so much, I think, there to learn. And I feel like when I am reading the manuscripts and the papers, I am barely touching the surface, you know, so it's almost like I depend on our basic science colleagues and the people that are doing the research to look at, you know, which biomarkers could be useful. I think that's incredible. I probably, you know, I can't answer the specifics of it, but just it's complex. And that's the most, I think, challenging part for those of us that do this is Patients, you, you never want to tell a patient, I don't know, but I do it all the time. I just say, you know, no, I mean, we don't know where it comes from. Chronic pelvic inflammation. So is are the changes that are coming to the nervous system or the, you know, or the soft tissue and the fibrosis, is that coming from the endometriosis? Is that, is that like, wh- what's, what's causing what? And it's hard to understand any of it when we don't know the pathophysiology. We don't know where it begins. And I think that's something that it'll be an exciting day for me. Hopefully, we'll be, it won't be too long before we start to understand better what, where this is coming from. Knowing that this is a mysterious disease, one that presents oftentimes early but is diagnosed late, why do you think that delay comes? Is it just simply we manage patients medically and they don't actually have the diagnosis with surgery till later? Is it, do you think women aren't being heard? Do you think it's all the, you know, all the things? Why is this such a challenging disease to diagnose? Yeah, I think you're right in that it's probably a a combination of factors. 
and that a lot of our research depended on a actual official surgical diagnosis of endo. So that's even already thinking about that. Our understanding of this disease are only people that ultimately kind of went to have surgery. So that's already kind of this interesting lens in which to understand an illness. So the big challenges with endometriosis are the fact that you know, we talked about this earlier, there can be a variety of symptoms. So someone might have very painful periods, not just a bad period, a very painful period that leads to missing work, missing school, things like that. Another patient might have pain that exists outside of the cycle. So non-cyclic pain. So, you know, daily pain. So there can be different manifestations and different levels of sort of the number of days in any month that someone is symptomatic. And probably the irony is that we can be dismissive even when it gets severe to daily, and we can be sort of dismissive and normalize the symptoms when they're cyclic and, you know, just monthly. So there's probably, you know, a lot of patients that initially get treated for just dysmenorrhea and, you know, are treated medically for dysmenorrhea with NSAIDs or a birth control pill and don't really ever get to that diagnosis of endometriosis as the source of that symptom, right? Dysmenorrhea is a symptom, not necessarily, right, a disease. So we know that people can see six to seven visits with their primary care provider before getting a referral, you know, to a gynecologist. And it can take up to 12 years, especially for our young patients to get these diagnoses. So I think part of it is that we're that we're very used to treating the symptoms of endometriosis as almost a normal part of the menstrual cycle. And we're just going to treat the dysmenorrhea, but not necessarily reach that diagnosis of endo and then and then kind of hone in on that as a disease. And in a way, that's it's good that diagnostic laparoscopy isn't necessary anymore to treat endo, right? You can do empiric treatment. You can have a working diagnosis of endometriosis. But I think a lot of people are sort of stuck in this medical management treatment of dysmenorrhea before before getting to endo. So they might be on like their fourth medical therapy, you know, for treatment of, of dysmenorrhea, but not have a diagnosis of endometriosis. So what's your algorithm? So how, if, you know, a patient comes to you First time being being seen by a gynecologist has painful periods, and and I and I and I write in my notes a lot presumed endometriosis or suspected endometriosis because, I like you said, I feel like we can treat these patients as if they had it without having to have surgery. It doesn't mean we're not. Those of us who do it, I feel like everybody's got endometriosis. It's just a matter of time until we find it. So again, what do you mean when you say, I guess like we should we be finding it sooner? Yeah. So. This is a great question, I think, even to throw back at you in the sense of if a patient undergoes first-line treatment for dysmenorrhea, that would be medications, so a form of suppression. Birth control pill is usually the first line. And then, you know, when we think about pain, is a medical failure, does that make that clinician think, well, then this couldn't possibly be endo? because I have you on a birth control pill and it's not getting better. Or does that clinician say, you, ha- you could have endometriosis and you failed the first line of treatment, which is medical therapy. So 
you know, we're we're very systems driven, which is funny that we talked about that before, Amy, but we're very systems driven in, in healthcare, right? So the gastroenterologist rules out inflammatory bowel disease and cancer for, for patient with certain bowel complaints and the gynecologist, you know, rules out this. And so if a patient is having a failure of a medical therapy, one thought is that it you know, oh, it can't be endo, right? You're not having your period and you still have pain. But failed medical therapy is also a symptom of endometriosis. Does that make sense? So it's like you shouldn't necessarily get to your fourth medication for medical suppression without more than a working diagnosis of dysmenorrhea and endometriosis. Right. So I think for, you know, for me, if a patient's tried something and failed, the medications failed them in that sense. Or if it's worked, neither of them tell me whether they have endometriosis or not. If they're if they're taking continuous birth control pills and their symptoms are well controlled, they could have endometriosis. They could not. They could take birth control pills and continue to have pain, and they could have endometriosis, or they could not have endometriosis. Right? That it doesn't help me make a diagnosis at all. That's part. Of, that's part of the challenge for me. That's that's the frustrating thing about this disease. But that's where diagnosis can be helpful in that it allows us to at least tell the patient something, but outside of the excision part, how often does it change our management to know? There's a few steps I think that we're skipping, which is making the sort of evaluation of the patient a little bit more individualized and the treatment a little bit more individualized than when we think of classic treatment for endo is medication and surgery, medication and surgery, right? And even as we talk, we're sort of stuck in that, like, well, I'll try a medication and then I'll do the surgery. And it's, I think, important for us to think about what we do know, because it can be really frustrating to think about all the things we don't know and all the things that don't necessarily work. And so when we get back to having that patient in front of us, so what are those person's symptoms? So is it dysmenorrhea? Is it dyspruenia? Is it painful bowel movements? So that we can try to get a sense for if they have endo, how sort of multi-site is their pain? Is imaging going to be helpful in terms of ruling out or at least helping guide us to start seeing that deep endo? So ultrasound and MRI have become really helpful, not for superficial endo, not for the salt and pepper endo, I call it, but like the deep endo. And to help us look for you know, comorbidities. So things like pelvic floor dysfunction, you know, vulvodynia, things like that. So as we talk about this, I think we can get stuck in the idea that endo is so difficult to treat because all we have is medication and surgery. But one of, I think, the most important things is that we actually have a lot of extra tools in our toolkit that we need to engage and employ beyond just the surgery and the medications. And then uh, that exam, that history needs to help us dictate the timing of surgery, the repetitive need for surgery. So I think if we kind of focus on that patient themselves and their exact symptoms, their exact exam findings, their exact imaging, it will be better, a better way to kind of frame would a medication work, would a surgery work? Combination. Yeah. I trained in Michigan. So Susie Sani, who is a well-known pelvic pain expert. The way I think we spent a lot more time in clinic than a lot of our other fellow colleagues, I always felt like 
I was like, why am I in clinic so much? But the way that we approach, the way that we were taught to approach pelvic pain as sort of this whole spectrum of things, one of one of the things was endometriosis that was part of that whole chronic pelvic pain spectrum, like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, interstitial cystitis, chronic complex inflammatory pelvic conditions of unknown cause, musculoskeletal etiologies, and, and, and looking at all of that whenever we talk to patients. All of those things are on our minds when we're getting a history, when we're doing an exam. And like you said, when you take a step back and understand that, yes, all of those things could be there, but oftentimes multiple things are there, as you touched upon earlier, and taking a more systematic approach, but also that long-term, we're going to, I can't promise you results, but I can promise you effort, and we're going to keep working with you and know that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, so where we're, where we're learning is that it's not one or the other, like you said. So it's endo or endo with or endo with subsequent central sensitization, endo with severe engagement of the pelvic floor and myofascial pain. And so there's that whole challenge that comes from the need for earlier diagnosis, you know, more specific, you know, treatments targeted, hopefully, to more superficial disease and things like that. But like when we get to our patients that we're operating on or we're treating, part of their treatment failures are sometimes sort of our failures to identify these comorbid conditions, these, you know, secondary processes that patients with endometriosis can have, you know. So we might optimally treat them surgically, but we're not optimally treating them and their condition without doing that careful physical exam and history. And I like what you said, this sort of longitudinal care, because new things may come up. So endometriosis isn't necessarily a moment in time. Comorbid conditions can arise, pain can recur, things like that. So this idea that you're in it kind of for the long haul to kind of, you know, be able to to monitor and see what else comes up as their pain recurs or doesn't recur. So I think I'm relatively simple-minded in that in the way that like I, I try to put these things in buckets, you know, that they and there can be multiple buckets, but there's a sort of a gynecologic or hormonally mod- modulated bucket. There's the urologic stuff, there's the GI stuff, there's musculoskeletal, and there's some overlap and sort of approaching each one. And so, you know, you give a patient birth control pills and they'll tell you, oh, I still have daily pain. The birth control pills don't work. Well, if you have musculoskeletal pain or pelvic floor dysfunction, the birth controls may not work. Your periods have stopped and your cyclic pain is better. And so let's go on to that next thing and kind of continue to work through things one at a time, throwing everything at someone. You never know what works. So it, it can be a very longitudinal treatment plan. But the patients, I think, that are the most challenging are the ones where, you know, we've we've done surgery we either we've done a pretty extensive excision or we've excised what we can see, you know, with our with our naked eyes and scopes. We've got them on hormonal suppression. We've sent them to PT, and they're still in pain, right? And those are the ones that we send we send to Mayo. Like, talk to us a little bit about those patients that have gone through the. I don't want to say basic because there's nothing I think basic about endometriosis, but the first, second, sometimes third line treatments of the hormonal suppression and surgery, plus or minus PT. What are the things that you think about when evaluating these patients? What are the tests that you you order? What are the treatment options that you that are available to certain patients? Or when do you operate on them again? Yeah, those are great. And I think we've got buckets too in terms of, you know, how to think about it and 
I think one important part, and you probably see consults as well, is getting a sense for the prior surgery, you know, getting a sense for the findings, the mode of treatment, the extent of treatment. That can be really helpful. There's a wide range in training for endometriosis surgery. Even within our small Even within MIGS. little subspecialty, it's, there's a wide variation, yep. a wide variability. Yeah, for sure. So there is a little bit of detective work in terms of really trying to be in that surgery that they just had and get a sense for where the disease was and how it was treated. So was there a lot of disease that remained? Were areas ablated that might have actually been deeper endometriosis? So, you know, the deeper levels of the endo maybe weren't weren't treated all the way. So I think that's an important part is to not assume anything, either positive or negative in terms of outcomes related to surgery and kind of get that information on your own. Another is I think that it's pelvic pain to me is where the history and physical is incredibly helpful. And so we spend a good amount of time with patients trying to get a sense of the associated symptoms, other triggers, you know, that might lean us towards something myofascial or a different overlapping pain condition that exists, coincides, sits on top of their endo, right? So it's not that you're trying to take away the valid diagnosis of endometriosis, but you're really trying to expand that differential to include those other possibilities. So a really thorough exam and obviously... There's great videos and really great literature out there on a good myofascial exam of the abdominal wall and the pelvic floor. And then also getting a sense for that degree of kind of neurologic involvement. So peripheral sensitization, central sensitization. And I think that can help guide treatment in terms of, you know, repeat surgery, optimizing, you know, comorbid conditions and and myofascial pain exploring additional therapies that can be targeted towards down-regulating and, and working on, on the sensitization process. But part of that can include, you know, repeat imaging. And I think it's just always important for us to remember that that repeat imaging doesn't rule out superficial endo or, you know, really small disease of endo. So that's an important component. But as we do all of that, I think really letting the patients know that, Everything they experience is valid. If we don't think it's endometriosis in that symptom, it's not that their pain isn't valid. It's that we need to help identify those buckets, persistent disease that maybe we could still treat surgically, comorbid conditions and overlapping pain conditions, or a significant sensitization component. And those are all very valid contributors to chronic pain. And it we're trying not to sort of, you know, when you when you say it can't be the endometriosis anymore, it's incredibly harmful to a patient. First of all, who says that? I mean, that's that's hard to I mean, obviously I'm not it's a rhetorical question. I mean, I have I have patients tell me things all the time that I'm wondering who in the world would say these things. Well think of the just the amount of training we get in endometriosis. And depending on how often that's updated and things like that, it can be it's a hard disease to fully understand its scope. And I think it's hard to keep in mind that there's something about endometriosis and there's something about pain that predisposes or can lead to these comorbid conditions. 
And maybe in many years, we'll learn about this as a systemic illness. And we've been thinking about it just as this thing in, in the pelvis, but it, it's a little bit more involved. Well, I, I tend to think that way, the latter, the more systemic. I think we're focused on what we can see with our eyes um, in many ways. The one manifestation we can see. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's just so much we can't explain. We have the patients that we operate on and you don't find anything. You take some biopsies just to have some path. And as a surgeon, you're happy for the patient when we don't see advanced endometriosis. But as the patient, they're oftentimes devastated when there's no findings for endometriosis because it doesn't explain all the the trouble they're going through. I mean, just sitting with patients and talking to them and listening, listening to their stories is sometimes just a powerful act because people are suffering and not being able to to get an answer for your pain is something that can be debilitating emotionally in ways that compound the the physical pain. Well, I think that the thing that I think about is like this whole concept of like the delay of diagnosis and, you know, you have like a nerve injury and then in the back in the days of transvaginal mesh kits or whatever and pudendal entrapment and then you get it right away, you take out the stitch, it's fine. And then, but if it it's greater than, I mean, we don't even know how, how long a period of time it takes, then it becomes a chronic problem. And then I see this like manifest in different arenas. I don't know if you guys read a couple weeks ago in the New York Times, there's that concept of weathering, like these black teenagers, if they entered motherhood when they were teenagers, they were fine. But as they got older, the outcomes got worse. It's like your body undergoes this stress associated with all these like social determinants of health and whatever. And then, you know, endometriosis is a true physical issue. And the more you travel down that path, the harder it is to reverse or what have you. And it's a big problem. And then I was talking about this with my resident in clinic many years ago. I came out and I was like, gosh, this patient is so negative in the doctors. But a lot of doctors can't, my residents and a lot of doctors do treat their patients with pain really poorly. And there's a lot of heterogeneity in the way the patients get diagnosed and treated and validated, like you alluded to earlier, Isabel. And all of that is like part of the art of medicine and doctoring. And it's tough. And and I see all these gaps in our knowledge and our patient care kind of getting filled by the internet. They're going to Facebook and they're going to the the groups to get advice, you know? And it is it is very sobering, but also fascinating what's been bubbling up. And actually, then you see academic literature analysis of the social media musings, which I also love. But it does give you, like, inform us of what's going on. Like, there's stuff like, I didn't even think about this, and boo on me. I mean, I don't put in a lot of IUDs, but the pain with IUD insertion, and that's like, it became a thing on TikTok and Green Journal article and all these other things. And endometriosis is the same way. It's like the patients are bringing up all this patient experience stuff. And now the celebrities are coming forward and saying, raising awareness, which I also find super fascinating. And the lists of the vetted surgeons that you guys are, I'm sure, part of and acknowledge it's part of the vernacular. I find it all really fascinating. I'm like in parallel to it. I mean, I am on some lists, like on Facebook, I guess, that some patient told me, but it's not like for you guys, totally different. I'm not on Facebook and it, it is a, and I, and I want to hear Isabel's feeling about all these things, but some of these groups are very 
strong in their feelings about one approach to management or another. You know, some are excision is it. And if you don't do these massive excision surgeries, you're not managing endometriosis and others. I mean, everyone has their feelings about it, which look, this is coming from a place of pain and frustration and, you know, failure from the medical system on these folks. And so I can see where this is coming from. But as a, as a surgeon, with what we're talking about, how complex it is, it's hard for me to believe that there's a simple approach to managing this incredibly complex disease process. I mean, I think there's, of all the data on surgery that exists, the best data is on excision of deep endo. So nodules of endo, you know, uterosacral fibrosis. And so if you can imagine sort of going through an experience of being delayed in a diagnosis or seen multiple providers, and there is this treatment that has some good, you know, research to support outcomes. I think I understand that mission to educate and to promote, you know, that option for, for these patients. If you follow social media, it's interesting in that I do think that there's this greater sense now, though, of the complexity. I think that wave is coming and I think people are appreciating that even, you know, excision of deep endo and fibrosis and scarring is, is helpful, but there are sort of extra abdominal manifestations of disease. There's other things happening that I think there's a greater understanding and sharing that it's a heterogeneous disorder and sort of not just solely explained or treated with the surgery. I think I get, though, that if you've had a lot of poor outcomes and poor treatments and there is something that, that has evidence behind it. I think what's hard is that there's not great evidence in the world of superficial disease, right? Um, and those are probably the patients that we understand the least because they have the smallest disease and significant pain and sort of persistent pain a lot of times after excision. But I think from a patient perspective, I, I understand it. And I think what helps is to talk to patients about what we do know, you know. So we do know that if you have another overlapping pain condition, we know that the outcome of your excision surgery is less robust if we don't address those other sources, you know. So not that excision surgery isn't needed for your pain, but that we really do need to kind of cover all our bases to get the best outcome we can for our patients. And so trying to put excision surgery, I think, in the context of a multimodal therapy, I think is the individualized way to treat patients. And I think that resonates. It's this or that, I think, you know, it's excision surgery or chronic pain meds, it's excision surgery or psych. And so... There's a role for kind of all those components depending on that exact patient, right? Each patient's going to be different. I think that's one of the things where MIGS has found a niche and has found a role in where I don't, you know, I'm calling it MIGS, I think is a misnomer, but I think, you know, there are oncologists that can do resection. There are uh, certainly many different types of OBGYNs who can provide birth control pills, but having someone that is dedicated to managing endometriosis as a major part of their practice and can spend the time and energy and effort to think about all of the different manifestations of the disease or the, or many of them, um, of the other comorbid conditions and can focus on all those things. And, the, and like you said, the, the, the marathon 
of managing endometriosis as opposed to like, oh, I can do your surgery. Well, but that's that's not what this disease requires. It requires listening. It requires time. It requires an exam. It requires understanding the limitations of what we know and what we don't know. It understand, you know, it, it's managing long-term and, and dealing with those failures along the way when they come up. And I think that's where I would love to see more research on outcomes from these multidisciplinary, multi-specialty uh, endometriosis programs, because my guess is that's where, and if literature's out there, please share it with us, because ha- having someone who can look at it from that perspective allows patients uh, the opportunity to be managed by someone who has access to all or as many of the treatment options as we have at the moment. Yeah, I think we have good data to guide us that those questions that we've had as we've seen our patients, the answers were yes, right? So the answers were that one of our patients who also has, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and chronic migraines is going to have a different outcome from surgery than someone who has solely dysmenorrhea and dyspareunia and undergoes surgery. And so now that we know that the answers are yes, that's true. Next is, you know, that interesting question of what's the right combination of therapies? What's the right timing? I think as surgeons, a lot of us think that get rid of that pain generator that we can see, feel, touch, excise first, and then continue with the patient on the journey of physical therapy and other things. But I think that's an interesting question. And there's some trials on, you know, physical therapy, pre-treatment, post-treatment, surgery in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, things like that. And again, those studies will only be helpful if they have a, you know, more homogeneous population that's well-defined to really describe a phenotype of of endo and chronic pelvic pain, not sort of all comers. Because a lot of patients probably don't, don't need it necessarily. So I think the literature is telling us that, yes, there are differences. And now the next step is how does that change how we treat and in what order we treat and things like that. So there's so many questions at the beginning. So like, how could we diagnose endo more accurately without surgery? And, you know, that's the research of biomarkers, which which is exciting. There's some interesting stuff coming out of Yale in that, in that regard. And hopefully that will pan out further. And then there's the complexity sort of at the other end once people have chronic pain disorders and overlapping pain conditions and sort of the questions there. And then to me, I think that middle world is those patients where even that first good surgery doesn't yield the response we're hoping for. I really hope we can learn more about that disease process and have more than the medications and the surgery to, you know, to treat them with. Isabel, you've given us a lot. It is such a complex disease. I know you're busy. We don't want to keep you all night. I feel like we should have like parts two through six of this conversation. But you know, I think it's important to know that there are people out there like you that are trying to understand this complex thing. There are people out there that are trying as hard as they can to figure out where endometriosis comes from, how we treat it, working in conjunction with other great dedicated surgeons. I mean, I'm very, I'm very lucky where I am. I've got a colorectal surgeon who is like, let's figure out endometriosis together. Like he's just in it to win it. He's not like, ugh, I got to come over and help them. I mean, like genuinely cares. And there's a lot of people out there that do. And so, and just coming on to Backtable and, and sharing what you know and, and your experience and about your practice and 
is extremely valuable for those of us out there that are exposed to endometriosis, that are exposed to patients that have these things, and to bring awareness. And so those of us who do this, that's all we think about. But out in the community, you know, if nothing else, to maybe have them think about endometriosis sooner in their evaluation, differential, and referral, and, and those kinds of things, I think, can be really powerful. So your time is valuable, we know, but we're so grateful that you've made the time to to come on and talk to us about endometriosis. And again, I feel like we could go on for days about it, but we just want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me. I think that I'm grateful that we're having conversations about all the things that we need to learn and do better for. And I feel like we're at a turning point and hopefully we'll get additional research funding to really start to work on answering those questions. As Amy said, I think that's a huge piece of this is we can only answer the questions that we can really study and delve into. So I'm hopeful, though, for the future. I think that that's also where the patient advocates, I think, are really pushing that important agenda. Agenda sometimes doesn't sound great, but it's a really essential agenda. And this disease deserves a lot of attention. Well, doctors like you give, I think, us all a great deal of hope. Thanks, Isabel. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Arvijinsky. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lillikinabrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.